0: would like to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. That's going to be our passage this morning. This is the last chapter in Genesis. We've completed our journey. It's taken approximately two years. We started in June of 2019. So we're finishing Genesis and Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we'll begin the book of Job. But for now, we're going to be looking at the last chapter, 1 through 26. We'll take the entire entire chapter in one, one passage, and bring it to a conclusion. Please join me in a prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we come in faith, we come expectantly. We ask that you would help us understand this passage. Father, show us the true meaning of what you have written. We freely acknowledge And confess that this is your revelation to us. Your special revelation. Is your inspired word. It's infallible. It's inerrant. So Father prepare our hearts and minds. For for what we're about to hear from your word. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Chapter 50. Is all about the end. As we. Look at this last passage, we're going to see it's the end of Genesis, it's also the end of Joseph, it's the end of Jacob. Uh, everything's coming to an end, there is, there is no more. Now Jacob's been a part of our Genesis journey since chapter 25. He's either been running in the, in the foreground or, or in the background this whole time, so over half of the book of Genesis we've seen Jacob, and it is now when he's finally buried. In fact, this is a major theme of the last chapter, uh, being buried. Eight times there's some kind of reference to either bury or buried or being buried, uh, burying uh, Jacob or or Joseph. So there's no getting around it. We've got to hit that head on and just kind of lean into it. This is about Jacob's burial and eventually at the end, Joseph's as well. As we look at this passage, we're going to see Jacob gets quite the burial. Uh, Nothing like this, I don't think any of us have ever seen anything quite like this. Seventy days of national mourning, we're going to see a, a long involved embalming period, there's this procession with, with dignitaries and a military escort, and it, it just goes on and on. He gets quite this elaborate burial, lots of attention and expense and, and attendance. But in the end, none of that really matters. None of it matters at all. What matters is that Jacob was buried in belief. He died believing in the promises of God. And that's what matters. And that's what still matters today, is being buried in belief. We're also going to see how it's not only possible, but desirable to be buried in belief while we're still alive. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the application. So let's read this together. This is Genesis chapter 50, starting at verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father may be swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return." And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning of the threshold, uh, on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel-Mizarene. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field in Machpelah, to the east of memory, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father." When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pass back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt He and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, and God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry out my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They involved him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So we begin this passage right where we left off, at the end of chapter 49. Remember, Israel died, so right at the beginning of our chapter, Joseph is expressing his immediate grief for the loss of his father. And he's, he's weeping. And this is followed very quickly by a command to embalm him. Not because he believed in the same thing the Egyptians did. We understand the Egyptians embalmed their dead because they believed that was essential for a happy afterlife. Uh, They believed that if the soul was going to be reunited with the body, then they had to recognize the body. So to preserve it would be necessary. That's not what Joseph believed. Joseph was embalming his father for practical reasons. They were going to be uh, going all the way back to the land of Canaan and they wanted to preserve the body um, for transport. It's very interesting. Here we have the the Egyptians though they did practice embalming and and yet they know nothing about the God of Israel. They know nothing about God's special revelation that, that we have today. And yet they believed in some kind of Afterlife, it was imprinted on their hearts that this is not all there is, and we're reminded even today that that's still true. We all understand and realize this is not all there is. Now we can, and with sinful natures, unbelievers do suppress that truth, and sometimes try to convince themselves and others that there is nothing more. But it's it's not true. 40 days. The level of preservation varied depending on how wealthy and important an Egyptian person was. So at the lower end, those that didn't have a lot of means, their bodies were simply washed and dried and, and that was about it. Others were treated to more uh, spices and, and oils and things like that. But if you were royalty, if you were up you know, on the higher end, then you got the works. So this was the washing, this was the spices, the ointments, this was the removal of the, of the organs that helped preserve the body from, from deteriorating from the inside out. This was, uh, included wrapping and several layers of, of linen and, and the accompaniment of, of, of all kinds of things designed to preserve the body. This was for um, you know, the rich and the royal. So 40 days with the attendance of, of physicians. And then on top of that it says 70 days of mourning. It says they wept for him 70 days. Egypt, all of Egypt. So it it seems as if Pharaoh commanded a national period, 70 days of, of mourning, so everyone participated. Well, then in verses 4 and 6, we've got a request for burial. Joseph initiates the, cre- the request, and if you caught this in, in the in the text, it's not directly to Pharaoh. Joseph, even though he's number two man in the entire empire, he does not go directly before Pharaoh. And there have been a couple explanations for this. One, uh, he recently had contact with a dead body. Okay, uh, maybe. Uh, the other explanation is that during... Joseph's period of mourning, he remained in, in an unshaven, um, un, unkept state, and this was important to the Egyptians. If you remember back when Joseph was raised up out of the pit, even though they called for him quickly, what what did they do before he could go in? They, he shaved. He got rid of his beard. So th- this was not, not something that they allowed, and this was not something that was tolerated in, in Pharaoh's presence. So I'm more inclined to believe that that's the best explanation, that during this period of mourning, in his unshaven state, he's not going directly to Pharaoh, and instead delivering a message. Uh, regardless, Pharaoh grants this request. So they sent out out, a, out on this journey to, to Canaan. It's, it's quite the journey, and it's quite the procession. We see three groups of people here, identified. Number one, the servants of Pharaoh. It says this included the Elders of the land of Egypt, and then in verse 7 we see that repeated word, all, all, all the important people along with the, the servants and attendants, so this was a who's who of the aristocracy in Egypt that participated And in that inclusion of the word all means that it was mandatory required, uh, no, nobody was allowed to, to miss this. Everybody came out, of course this is Egypt, so there was great displays of, of wealth and and authority in this first group of people, the servants of Pharaoh. Number two, the household of Joseph. Everybody, except the young children and the animals. But everybody made the journey. This was a, a large group. And then number three, chariots and horsemen. This was a military escort. They would be traveling a long distance, and they were going to be traveling outside of Egypt, and this was enough to prevent anything other than a large assembled army to, to cause any, any problems. No, nobody was going to trouble the, this, this caravan as they went on with the uh, military escort of horsemen and, and chariots from Egypt. These were skilled warriors with weapons. It says it was a very great company, could also be translated as exceedingly massive or exceedingly numerous. And we can try to picture what this looked like. I mean, chariots, banners and in and, and full regalia and, and, and colors and, and the, the wealth display and just the sheer size of this procession moving from Egypt to, to Canaan. It was greater than any kind of uh, presidential funeral procession that we may have viewed on, on television or a scene. This was something that we'll probably never see in our lifetime. Exceedingly Massive. Verses 10 and 11, the location of this threshing floor in Aten, we're not sure, we're not exactly sure where this is. Um, the location has not been determined with certainty. But this exceedingly massive funeral procession sets up there and has another week-long time of mourning, and the locals are so taken aback that they either name or rename this place uh, the Weeping of, of, uh, of Egypt, the Mourning of Egypt. A very great and grievous lamentation. We can only imagine what that might have looked like. A week-long wailing and mourning. A very vocal um, seven days of mourning. And then verses 12 and 13, summary verses, They emphasize the burying of Jacob in the promised land. This is a faith statement. That's why we've got this language in here. We want The, the, the writer wants to make sure the reader understands he is being buried, just like he asked, just like it was uh, promised in the Promised Land, and then in verse fifteen, after the burial, the brothers start to get a little nervous again. We 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 thought things were over and, and we're all okay. We're good here, but now all of a sudden, um, it says they are um, getting a little nervous. It says that they're they're wondering if. It it, it may be that he will hate us and pay us back for what we did to him. Okay, so the idea is, well, you know, dad didn't forget about, you know, the things that we did when he handed out the fatherly blessings. It may be that Joseph hasn't really forgot about that. He's kind of been sitting on it until the right time, and now is the right time. Now the dad's out of the picture. So they're getting a little nervous. So their plan is to lie. That's never a good plan. But it's a shame, isn't it? Here, after all the forgiveness and the grace that, that Joseph has shown them, in their heart, they're, they're still thinking along those lines of, well, we did this to him, so you know he's probably going to want to do it to us. They, they can't see past that that human nature uh, they can't see into the grace and the forgiveness that he's offered them. So the plan is to lie. They're going to ask forgiveness by proxy through their recently deceased father. So they send the message, your father commanded us. No, he didn't. No, that's a lie. At least they were accurate in their description, transgression, sin, evil. Yes, that's true. And then on top of that, they bow down before him and say, we're your servants. Please forgive us. In verse 19, he immediately lets them know there's no need for all this groveling. Please you know, get up off your knees. You don't need to do that. You're already forgiven. Do not fear. You have nothing to worry about. You have nothing to worry about. Am I in the place of God? Joseph's telling them, "Look, I'm not going to act as judge, jury, executioner. It's it's not my place. Even if you, even if I hadn't forgiven you, even even if you never uh, made this this request, even if there was never reconciliation, even then." That's not my place. I'm not going to punish you for something that you did. It's not my place to exact revenge. And this is a consistent theme throughout Scripture, the New Testament also, Romans twelve nineteen beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is very clear, explicit teaching in Scripture. We're not to take revenge. That's God's job. And then Joseph speaks what has become some of the primary anchor verses in the Bible that teach on the providence of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is where the sovereignty and the the providence providence of God shakes hands with human decisions, real choices, and things that happen in history. This is very similar to Genesis 45, 5. Remember, this is at his reveal, when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. He says, and do not be distressed or angry with with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Always pointing back to, to first cause. God decreed it. The the brothers didn't sell Joseph into slavery and then God kind of, you know, rubbing his temples thinking, well now what am I how can I salvage this? No. No, God decreed it. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now we also need to see how this passage points to Jesus because in in this context, in in Genesis 50, he's talking about something very temporal, very earthly, very very, uh, here and now material. But we also know that we confess the same truth along with Peter that although the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem meant evil against Jesus, God meant it for good. Very similar. Very similar. That many people should be saved, not from a famine, but from their sins. Acts 2 22 and 23 captures this, this concept. Men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders. And signs that God did through him in your midst, as you you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, there's the decree, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then followed later on by Peter, later on in his sermon, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So again, we we see these things shaking hands: God's providence and the real actions of, of people making evil choices. Uh, were the, the Jewish leadership and, and the Romans who nailed him to the cross? I mean, were everyone was everyone that was involved in the crucifixion of Jesus? Were they were they breaking the command of God? Yes, do not murder. They were they were lying and scheming and and making sure that he was executed. That is called murder. So yes, they were breaking God's revealed law, but at the same time, in tandem, this was a decree of God. He was using it for good to save many from their sins. Well, after the burial, both with Joseph and with Jesus, God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. At all time and all things, no matter how bad things seem, God is working for his purposes. Verse 21, you have nothing to worry about. I will continue to take care of you, is what Joseph's words to his brothers were. And he did. Verses 22 and 23, Joseph's burial. So he lives out his remaining years of life in Egypt. He experienced the blessings. Remember the fatherly blessing that was given to Joseph? It was exploding with blessing language. And Joseph received that in his remaining years in Egypt. He saw his grandchildren. And for whatever reason, it says he adopted one of Manasseh's children just like Jacob had adopted his two children. Ephraim and Manasseh and then verses 24 and 25 again last words, words of faith describing the coming exodus God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob so 400 years prior to the event taking place once again Joseph makes a faith statement this is going to happen God is going to deliver us. He's going to bring us into the promised land. And when he does, I want you to bring my bones, whatever's left after the embalming in 400 years, I want that to be taken back to the land and be buried in the promised land. Statement of faith. And then finally, 26, he died in 110. They embalmed him. Again, not because he believed in the pagan Egyptian afterlife, but because if they wanted to, to bring something up 400 years later, they needed to be something there to bring up. So they, they're, it's a practical embalming and preservation. So buried in belief. There's, again, there's no way any of us are ever going to experience anything like what Jacob experienced. That, that kind of level of, of attention and, and expense and, and detail and, and attendance. 70 days of national mourning. I don't think presidents even get that. 40 days of embalming body preparations, meticulous care by multiple attending physicians. No, I don't think any of us are going to get that. All the national dignitaries and attendants, chariots, horsemen, a place named after the extravagant mourning and, and, and funeral or uh, uh, attendees mourning. That's just not happening. I don't, none of us are ever going to receive that. And many of us are probably thinking, good, I don't, I don't want all that. But we do have one thing in common with Joseph's burial. For those in Christ we will be buried in belief just like he was. All those who are in Christ will be buried in belief just like Jacob. Because in the big picture none of that matters. All the chariots all the horsemen, all the banners waving all the dignitaries, all the important people in in the Egyptian uh, empire with their expensive clothes and jewelry and displays of wealth, chariots um, none of that really matters at all that didn't make one difference in Jacob's eternity, none what mattered was the fact that he was buried in belief kind of like gravestones today and funerals today, we understand that there is a wide spectrum of, of what that looks like for each person, I mean if you go to the cemetery you can see Something as simple as a small rectangular plaque, just big enough for the information of the person's name and and birth and death, all the way up to, you know, with varying steps in between, something that stands, you know, six feet tall with a big granite polished sphere in the middle and and angles and things, and even all the way up to, if you really get expensive, a, a mausoleum. Some kind of structure made out of stone. And the, you know the, If you've got enough money, I guess you can, you can make something like that. and You can put the body in there. It doesn't make any difference. Not at all. It doesn't make one bit of difference on a person's eternity. What makes a difference is whether or not they did, died in belief or unbelief. That's it. That's it. That's the only thing that matters for eternity. For those in Christ, being buried in belief means the immediate beginning of an eternity with our Lord and Savior, joining with all the others who have gone before us in faith, who have been buried in faith, who have repented of their sin. It means the beginning of that eternity with the Lord. The only way that that happens is to be buried in belief. And that belief is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. Jesus Christ is the only passageway, the only safe passage to get to God. Jesus is the bridge. You may have seen an old evangelistic technique uh, writing out uh, how Jesus is the bridge that reconciles and reunites us with God and They usually make one big sharp dropping off cliff over here and they draw a stick figure, that's you. And then there is this big cliff that drops over and here's God. And there is no way any of us can can make it over to the other side. We just can't reach it. We don't have the the strength or the ability to to reach God on our own. The chasm is too wide. It's like trying to to jump over the Grand Canyon. None of us can do it. the illustration goes on. You know the the good works that we do; none of them can can help us reach the other side. We will all fall down into into death. But Jesus is the bridge. And then they draw a cross with with the cross beam uh, connecting the two sides, and then the stick figure can walk over to God. It's a simple illustration, but it works. Jesus is the bridge that connects people to God, and he's the only passageway, he's the only way to safely make it across. He is God's provided way. We can't get there on our own. If you've lived in Maine, we lived there three years, but if you've you've seen somebody from Maine, or if you've you've heard something about it, or if you've watched travel shows, they have a saying in Maine, when someone stops for directions. Now this is before GPS and you know, Google Maps and things like that. So in the, in the day, when you actually had to stop and ask for directions, if you ask somebody from Maine, how do I get to Bar Harbor? Let's say you've taken a wrong turn and you're in the woods somewhere. The first thing they'll say is, oh, you can't get there from here. <laughs> you, you can't get there from here. They'll say, you can't get there from here. And what they, they don't really mean, it's impossible to get there. What they mean is, you're in the wrong spot, you're lost, you're going to have to backtrack to this main road, and then from that point, we can give you directions to get to Bar Harbor or wherever you happen to be going. It's the same thing with humanity and God. We can't get there from here. There's no possible way that we can make it to God. We've got to make it back to the cross. We've got to get to the cross and from that point. We are reunited with God. That's the that's the number one message contained in the Bible. The forgiveness of sins is through faith in Jesus. God promises everyone who turns to Jesus Christ in faith that he will forgive their sins and grant eternal life. For those that are buried in belief, they are reunited with their Lord and Savior and with everyone else who is buried in belief. For those who are not, for those who are buried in unbelief, they are immediately in a place of torment and will be forever. I cannot teach that all roads lead to God because they don't. That would be a lie. I cannot teach that people simply cease to exist because they don't everyone, every soul will exist for eternity in one of those two places, either with the Lord forever or in a place of torment. I cannot tell you that all religions are equally valid if sincerely believed because they're not. All religions in the world are man-made and ultimately from the evil one and are designed to keep people trapped in an unsaving religion. Jesus is the only bridge, the only way to find forgiveness of sins and to be reconciled to God. We want to be buried in belief, which means we want to be buried in belief um, at the end. We want to keep believing our whole life. If, if Think about this. If we want to be buried in belief, that means we have to be believing when we die. Not, not just here or here, but at the end. We want to make it to the end believing. Uh, Jesus tells the par- parable of the sower. I'm sure you're familiar with this if you've gone through the Gospels. It's in a couple places. And a couple of the, the soils that the seed gets sown on, one of them is rocky ground, Another one is ground that that the seed grows up and and gets entangled with thorns and things like that. Remember this parable? Both of those soils, both of those scenarios are describing people who start off believing, but at some point in their life fall away. The rocky soil has, has roots and it sprouts up quickly, but during times of persecution, tribulation, is what scripture says, they fall away. The, the soil, the, the plant that grows up in the soil, and it gets choked out eventually by the deceitfulness of riches, wealth, stuff, possessions, the world. It falls away. It doesn't make it to the end. Both of those soils are teaching that there are some that begin, but don't make it to the end. They're not buried in belief because they don't keep the belief their whole life. This is something that's taught, that the Gospel of John, if you look at Gospel of John chapter 2, it says there were many who believed in his name. Many people were believing in Jesus because of the signs and the things that he was doing. But then by the time you get to John chapter 6, it says many of those people, many of his disciples turned away and no longer followed. him. What does that teach us? It means that belief was a surface belief. It wasn't new spiritual birth, it was, it was a surface belief, it was a transient belief, it was a temporary belief. It was one that was brought on about, by, by emotions and a response or something that, that seemed good at the time, but it was, it was not genuine heart change. They didn't make it to the end, they weren't buried in belief. This is one of the most tragic things to witness. I've seen it. I know many of you have probably seen it too. It's tragic to see someone who has professed belief and by all outward appearances looks as though they're a believer, but then they fall away. And it, it shows in the end that they never truly believe. They start off saying, I'm all in, I am all in. And then a little bit later on, well, I'm in. I'm not all in. I mean, I'm not, don't don't push it. But yeah, I'm, I'm in. And then eventually, well, I'm not sure if you really have to be in. You know? You know, I, I've been there, done that. I've been, I've read the Bible. I've, I've been to church. I don't. It feels like you guys are trying to box God in, and you know, you have to believe this certain thing about God, or else you go to hell. I don't know. I, I see, you know, God's grace being bigger than. That. tragic we want to be buried in belief which means we will want to keep believing our whole life, we want to make sure that the, the belief that we have is a result of spiritual new birth and you know, you'll, you'll know you'll know, the Holy Spirit will testify we will see fruit and it will last your entire life now, buried can mean more than just buried in a funeral it also means being overwhelmed or swamped. Maybe you've used this phrase, you've heard this phrase being used. Uh, I'm buried in work. I'm so buried in work, I don't even know what time I'm going to get to go home today. It means you're, you're, you're overwhelmed. There's a, there's a lot. Now I said at the beginning, we're going to see how not only is it possible, but desirable to be buried in belief while still alive. And here's what I mean by that. We want to be overwhelmed with belief. We want to be inundated with belief. Belief in the promises of God. We want to be buried in belief. Not belief in the promises of God for a particular piece of geographic land across the ocean in between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. That's not what we're believing in. That promise is no longer valid. There is no such promise today. That was for them. It was fulfilled. But that's not what we're believing in. No believer in Jesus. No, no, no one who belongs to God is looking forward to that. And I want to make sure we understand what's going on here. Um, we're not, we don't want to make the error of dispensational teaching. If, if you've heard somewhere in the past, like, oh yeah, I know, but that's not for us, but for the Jews, right? Doesn't Israel get, get put? No. No, um, dispensational teaching teaches that there are two tracks, two groups. There's the church, and then there's the Jew, the Jews, ethnic Israel. And God's got two different plans and two different futures. And the church is over here in Israel. One day they're going to have the land restored to them. That's not true. That's false teaching. You read Ephesians two eleven through twenty two. And tell me if you still believe in that. Uh, if you've ever entertained that, it's just it's it's dispensational teaching. That's what it's called, and it's not biblical. So I want to make sure we're clear on that. That land over in Israel is just land in Israel. It's no more holy than uh, Illinois, and no one is going to inherit land anymore. They inherited the land if you remember under the military leadership of Joshua they came in, divided, conquered and they received the allotments of land and at the end the Bible says there they go, they, they inherited the land just as God promised, that's over of course there was exile, return but remember Jerusalem 70 AD that was it that was the judgment there's one church there's one body, Jew and Gentile reconciled through the cross into one body so I wanted to clarify that no, we want to be overwhelmed with belief, but not belief that we're inheriting some sort of geopolitical piece of actual earth on, on earth. I mean, think about that, really. Is that what we're shooting for? Is that what we believe? Is that is that what we're rallying around? Our 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 biggest hope one day is that we can move to somewhere else? No. No, we look forward to the inheritance of an eternity with God in a perfect place. A place better than the land promised to Abraham and his descendants. A place better than the original paradise of Eden pre-fall. And we will enjoy this forever in resurrected, glorified bodies that will never die. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see that new birth, born again, all those who God has called, he has an inheritance that has nothing to do with moving to a new place on, on the planet Earth, but it has everything to do with an eternity with God defiled and unfading that's what we're looking forward to not a change of address and just like it dominated the thought life of Jacob and Joseph this, this promise that should be what we're being buried in our, our belief in this belief in our future, this belief in the promises of God, everything we do and, and say and plan should pass through this filter of believing in the promises that God has extended to us. You could say that they were buried in belief of the Promised Land. I mean, you look at the language there. You, you saw Joseph and Jacob a couple of times. It's recorded for us. He makes him swear with his dying breath, make sure you bring my body into that promised land. It, it was, dominated their thought life. It was number one in their priority. Whatever you do, make sure I get there. In the same way, we ought to be buried in believing in God's promises to us. Our eternal inheritance should be this constant blinking LED light on the dashboard of our life. Everything we should do should pass through that filter of our faith in Jesus, what he has promised to us. We should be snowed under in belief. We should be flooded with belief. We should be besieged with belief. We should be buried in belief, even while we're still living. There should not be a day that goes by without thinking on the Lord and how we should be living in light of who Christ has called us to be and what he is in store for us. Should be buried in belief the question then is are you are you buried in belief setting your heart on the promises of God on the lordship of Jesus Christ and everything he has for you and everything he's called you to be is that are you inundated with with belief in the lord Jesus Christ is that what's driving everything in your life is that what's guiding your, your personal goals, your, your financial goals, your your, your time, uh, your, where you're at, what you're doing. Is, is that it? There was a, a weekend retreat for junior high and early high school students and they were teaching them basic survival skills. So they brought them out camping one weekend and they taught them how to make a shelter. They taught them how to find... Food and forage. They taught them how to purify water and to make fire. And one of the exercises that they had them do on this weekend was basic map reading and and compass skills. And after after they had trained them and showed them how to do it, they they brought them into this large area and they gave each of the participants a, a set of instructions and a compass. And each one got a different set of instructions so they couldn't get together and figure it out themselves. They had to do it on their own. And they had several stakes, these markers with, with colored flags on them, and they said, okay, here's everybody's starting in the right spot, follow these ten directions, and then we'll check and see if you end up at the right marker when you're done. Well, the problem was, there were so many markers, and it was such a big area, and they weren't told how far they were going. They only were given the compass point. That if they were off by one degree or so, or if they went down a little depression and came up and then were were a little bit off from their starting point, they could end up at a different marker. And then the next direction was from that marker. And you can see there were there were a lot of chances for error. And at the end of the exercise, they, the evaluators came by and they said, yeah, you got it. Nope, you're supposed to be over there. You're supposed to be over there. Some of them just hadn't gotten that. Because they were off and the longer they, they went with being off, the the further away from their goal they became. If being buried in belief on the promises of God and who we are in Christ is not our compass point, if we're off by one or two degrees, the longer we go on living like that, the further away we're going to drift. And the greater the chances are that we're not going to be where we need to be at the end, because we're not told how long we're on the earth, right? We're not told how how many steps we're going to be able to take. So the question is, are we buried in belief in the promises of God, or is it something else? And we all have to do this individually. We can't compare maps or compare instructions. It's, it's us and the Lord. We have to look ourselves in the mirror and be honest. And... M- Am I buried in belief on the promises of God? I know I should be. I know I want to be. But am I right now? And if it's something else, address it. Shine light on it. Get it out of the dark. Genesis concludes with Jacob and Joseph being buried in belief but in reality, they've been buried in belief for quite some time. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and keep believing in the Lord Jesus Christ until you die. Amen. Father, we're so thankful that you have revealed your word to us so that we don't have to go around and guess what your will is for our life. We don't have to wonder about what genuine faith looks like Father you've revealed it it is repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ it is surrendering our life and following the Master and it is remaining in belief over a lifetime Father none of us want to be sprinters that start off strong and then fall away over time. None of us want to, to get tired or, or weary and, and run out of breath and decide to, to sit out the last quarter or the last half. Father, if there's anything in our life that is taking first place or sitting on, on the throne Other than Jesus Christ, we ask that you would reveal that. Help us to follow you until life's end. Amen.